Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. The Rules of Investing gets inside the minds of leading investors, economists, and industry experts, and it's brought to you by Livewire Markets. To celebrate a million downloads and streams, we're bringing you a special video podcast today. If you're listening to this and would prefer to watch it, just head on over to the Livewire Markets YouTube channel to check it out. Thanks for being a part of the success of the show, and I hope you'll continue to tune in as we rack up our next million downloads. Today's special guest is Owen Hegarty, OAM, Executive Chairman of EMR Capital. Owen started his career at Rio Tinto, where he spent 25 years eventually becoming the Managing Director of Rio Tinto Asia and of Rio Tinto's Australian Copper and Gold Assets. In 1994, he left Rio and soon after founded Oxiana Resources, the Mighty Ox. After an incredible run through the 90s and 2000s, Oxiana and Zinefex merged to create Oz Minerals, which was one of the largest resources companies in Australia at the time. Owen was also the vice chairman of Fortescue Metals Group, where he helped Twiggy Forest to build the company into the giant it is today. In this episode, we discuss the resources supercycle of the 2000s, as well as some of the similarities and differences to today's market. We take a deep dive into potash and why he's interested in the sector. And he tells us about the commodities and projects that he's investing in today, including some that should be familiar to those who remember his time at the Mighty Ox. If you're an Apple Podcasts or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever I post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Just head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free, easy to register, and you'll get access to insights from the leading investment minds in the country. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Owen. Welcome to the show. Good to be chatting with you. Thank you, Patrick. Lovely to be here. It's, uh, it's great to have you here for this special million downloads uh, episode, um, trying something a little bit different today. So I hope it, uh, it's fun for you and also for the audience. Let's rewind a little bit to the mid-90s. You just had a very successful career at Rio Tinto. You were the managing director there uh, for their, I believe it was managing director of Rio Tinto Asia, uh, as well as head of their Australian copper and gold assets. Um, but in 94, you left Rio Tinto, and uh, about 12 months later, you popped up uh, at Oxiana. Um, tell me, I'm curious, did you foresee the kind of bull run that was coming in commodities in the years ahead, or was it just a bit of case of a you know fortuitous timing? Well, a little bit of everything, I suppose, Patrick. Um, I mean, the, the 24 years or something rather with Rio Tinto, I was uh, lucky enough to be involved with most of their companies, most of their countries, and most of their commodities. So a very lucky uh, you know, to have that sort of background and experience, actually. Wonderful people, wonderful company. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the work was going more and more in terms of uh, uh, investment and commodity demand and so on, going more and more to Asia. 
so, and I was lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time in Asia, was based in Hong Kong, based in Taiwan, did a lot of travelling in that part of the world. And you could actually see the economies growing, uh, you know, at the time. So it was pretty clear that uh, you you were going to have, you know, good, strong demand coming for a long period of time, given the number of people uh, that are there in, in Asia. Um, and particularly in our commodities, the commodities that, that we were close to and, and knew well, which included copper, uh, other base metals, precious metals, gold, and so on. So, so taking the leap from the big end of town to the small end of town was, was quite a leap, of course, you know, from a personal perspective as well as a corporate uh, perspective. But we could see the opportunity uh, out there with that growth in Asia in, in our metals, Patrick. So... So yes, we saw, in a way, we saw it coming, but we, we were lucky enough to be in a very good position to see it coming. In other words, part of our job, in a way. Uh, and we saw the opportunity to get involved in a smaller public company, uh, and we started the Mighty Ox uh, at that time, sure. You mentioned there the growth that you were seeing in Asia. Was that kind of the primary thing that you could see driving the, you know, the resources super cycle? Or was there also kind of a supply side that you were seeing as well? Well, the demand was was driving, of course, and uh, uh, Asia and, and China was was starting to grow at that time as well. And you're starting to see the numbers uh, becoming much bigger. And we'd actually spent quite a bit of time in, in uh, China and other places, Indonesia, uh, etc. So, so you could see the demand growing, as I say, almost under your feet there. And we knew that the supply side was going to be challenged. And, and we're supply side people, we're mining people. So, you know, we had to put the focus on that. And of course, Australia is absolutely perfectly positioned uh, to take advantage of that. And, and that's still the case, Patrick. I mean, yes, it was true in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and it's still true now in the 20s. What are some of, I guess, the similarities or the differences that you see between where we stand in the commodity cycle today compared to where we were sitting, you know, in that kind of late 90s period? Yes, well, yes, there is a difference, no question about that. In the, in the late 80s, 90s and so on, you were seeing the, the Asian market grow. I mean, the rest of the world was growing too, uh, but most of the growth was coming from our part of the world uh, in Asia. And everybody looking to, you know, to grow their business, to grow their company, to grow their own uh, livelihoods, all, as I say, all looking to get on that super highway of economic growth and prosperity, you know, uh, countrywide, corporate-wise, uh, and so on. And it happened. And, and very strong demand for all of the commodities that we're involved in. So what's the difference now? And that, now that's been going for the last multiple decades. You, you've, had a, you've had part of the super cycle. You've had 40-something years of, of all of that. Now what's, what's different? What is added to that? What's the booster here? The booster is now the whole energy transition thematic. So it's all renewables and EVs and net zero and decarbonisation uh, and so on. So that that is now going to add another another boost, another dimension. And and as I say, it's no longer a thematic. People and countries are actually starting to put targets on it. You know, it's 2030, 2040, 2050, 60, and the Modi has gone out to 2070. So we've got 50 years uh, to run there of the whole uh, decarb energy transition, uh, you know, complex, if you like. And that's going to add add demand because you've already got the underlying demand there. That's going to add on top of that. And, of course, it adds to our supply challenges 
because we're, as I say, we're supply side people. And again, Australia perfectly positioned to be able to take advantage of that, Patrick. Well, let's move on to around 2008. Um, obviously, Oxiana had had a, a great run through that early 2000s period. Um, but then in 2008, all of a sudden, there was a merger announced with Zinefex. Where did that come from? How did it first kind of come up? Well, I think uh, like-minded people at that time looking to grow their their business uh, and grow value generally for all of their shareholders and stakeholders generally. Uh, that's what I was doing, obviously. That was my job as the CEO of uh, the Mighty Ox. Uh, and again, the Mighty Ox had actually grown, you know, very successfully. You know, the the overnight success that only took 15 years or, or thereabouts, uh, Patrick. Uh, equally, Zinefex was a you know, strong and growing uh, base metals company uh, here in Australia, but had uh, had offshore projects uh, and so on as well. It it made sense for us as as boards and, and management to put those assets together to get bigger, uh, to become more competitive uh, and stronger, and that's what that's that's how it came together uh, at that time. Ran into a bit of a speed bump there in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. You will remember that everybody remembers that. Uh, called the global financial crisis, uh, and and therefore, but but survived survived very well. Had to had to peel off one or two assets and make a few changes, uh, but survived as as Oz Minerals, uh, and is still Oz Minerals is still one of the best uh, performing market stocks on the ASX in the past twenty or thirty years. So it's it's actually done very well. So it got through the the speed hump. Yeah, there were some concerns there when Prominent Hill was kind of coming to the end of its life, whether they really had any any options left. But it it seems like the new asset, I've never actually said this out loud before, is it Carapatina? Is Carapatina that right? Is. I'm glad I got that one right. Uh, it seems to be performing quite well for them now. Um, bit of a tough question for you. Uh, going back to the, that global financial crisis period, um, when the when the merger was announced, uh, Oz Minerals was expected at the time to have about one point nine billion dollars of cash on books, of net cash that is. Um, it was only about twelve or eighteen months later, though, that as you said, you had to sell off some of those assets. And uh, from what I can gather, it did seem as though it was somewhat of a distress asset sale. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but that seems to be what the the literature from the time suggests. So. What do you think actually went wrong there? And, um, you know, were there any useful lessons that you were able to take away from that? Uh, well, look, very interesting. Uh, I can't remember all of the detail, as you would expect. Uh, but it was a very tough time for everybody, whether for businesses, for people, for companies, for countries, you know. Uh, it was it was very very difficult uh, indeed. And, and as far as the debt, remember, it was a financial crisis. The banks. The banks weren't lending to each other. You couldn't find anybody in the banks to talk to. The debt levels of the of the merged company weren't actually very high. Uh, they, they were actually quite modest and moderate in a way. But you couldn't you couldn't find anybody to talk to in terms of rolling it over or what have you. So so it became uh, difficult for the company at that time, which is why they had to go into the business of um, of looking to shed one or two assets, which they did. Uh, and and in the end, quite successfully, actually. Okay, so what uh, what do you learn from that? Well, what what you know also very clearly is is our 
our mantra, our narrative is we are going to see long, strong, continued growth uh, in demand for commodities. It's going to go out, as I said, uh, you know, for 50 years, according now to, to India. That, and that's fine. But you won't be without the humps and bumps along the way. Um, and this was a particular uh, hump and a bump. We've just been through one here, uh, Patrick, with uh, COVID, right? So you saw what happened during uh, COVID as well at the beginning of 2020, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. The market just uh, tanked, you know, now, and people were saying, well, what, what's happening? It wasn't a financial crisis per se. It was simply a, a market crisis. Commodities, commodities down, stock market down, all your leading indicators were well and truly down. Okay, and people say, well, you know, are we going to get a recovery? Well, you know, sure, we're going to get a recovery. We didn't know whether it was going to be V-shaped, W-shaped, L-shaped, M-shaped, inverse square, root-shaped, whatever shape it was going to be. But we sure got the recovery ultimately, and it was a very, very sharp V-shaped recovery, which which is actually a terrific thing because it tells you that the world uh, and and with with its great industrial uh, diversity uh, across countries and and so on can actually recover very quickly, and and there's a lot of working together, uh, if you like, not only at the at the health safety uh, level, uh, but there was a lot of working together. Uh, at the economic level as well in terms of financial markets and so on. So the recovery was very, very sharp, and we're now uh, back on track for all of that. And and I should say, uh, Patrick, the mining industry ha- has actually come through COVID very, very well, a- as it did, by the way, ultimately post the global financial crisis as well as the Asian financial crisis going back 10 years uh, before that. Uh, type of thing. Mining industry very well prepared for any health and safety, occupational health type issues, always well prepared for emergency uh, type issues, is quite remote in terms of the community, so you can manage those things much better in, in remote uh, areas. So the mining industry actually came through that uh, very, very strongly. So we've, we've seen one in around about 2000, we saw one in 2009, 2010, we've saw, seen one here in 2020. So we've got another 10 years to wait for the next one, Patrick. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> another 10-year bull market would be, would be very welcome. <laughs> um, some of the assets that were once part of Oxiana have now kind of found, your way back, found their way back into your portfolio uh, at, um, at EMR Capital. How did that come about? Well, again, very interesting question, uh, Patrick. And, and for example, the gold mine in Indonesia, Matabi. Uh, Matabi was an asset that we'd bought in Oxiana. Uh, and that was one of the assets that after the merger came out. Uh, and I was associated with the acquisition of it. So acquired it for the second time. Uh, and we actually put it, uh, put the money together out of uh, Hong Kong uh, and Indonesia, and we built that uh, mine in Indonesia, the Matabi gold mine. Cracker of a gold mine, spinning like a top, uh, got it up to 300, 400,000 uh, ounces per annum. Very successful, not only uh, financially, technically, socially, uh, sustainably, uh, if you like. So, so a terrific uh, beacon there. Uh, and then uh, that was that the owner. Uh, the, the, the Hong Kong owner sold it to EMR Capital and then ultimately EMR Capital uh, disposed of it. But the thing about that, Patrick, having bought it, I suppose, bought and sold it three times, uh, if you like, looks a bit odd on the CV, um, but, uh, but very, very good uh, uh, deposit, 
Very, very good uh, operation, ultimately. Uh, very good support in that part of the world, up in North Sumatra there from the local communities and so on. I mean, you've got to work hard at it. Uh, you, you've got to build trust and confidence and support and cooperation in and around and amongst those communities. That's the most important thing you can do. Well, it doesn't matter, actually, if it's in North Sumatra uh, or the red dust of, of the Mount Isa inlay. You know, you need the support and cooperation of all those local people. So, so we always had a... Uh, a um, you know an attraction I suppose for that Matabi Goldmine. So that's how that came and went a little bit inside the family. Equally at uh, Golden Grove in Western Australia, that was a mine that we bought uh, in the Ox uh, from Newmont at the time. Um, and again, it was a it was a little bit on the unloved, didn't fit completely inside the Newmont portfolio because it wasn't 100% gold. Yes, there was gold there, but it was uh, zinc and, and base metals, I suppose. So, so therefore, a li- little bit on the underloved side, if you like. And then we uh, we in the Ox bought it from there, and then it was an asset that that went to to MMG out of the out of Oz Minerals, uh, and then we bought it back from MMG. You, you will remember MMG, big big Chinese group, uh, they bought the very big uh, South American copper asset called Las Bombas, uh, and so all of their money, all of their people, all their attention was going over to Peru, uh, and therefore, you know, there was, there was less capital and less attention, if you like, for the Golden Grove asset here in Western Australia. Uh, so we, we were able to secure uh, that and, and set about uh, uh, reinvesting, putting people back, putting technical uh, know-how and various other innovations and improvements uh, into place, uh, and that is now still uh, still part of the family, uh, if you like, inside uh, 29 Metals. So that, that's how th- those sorts of things came around. The, the lesson there you, you, is the lesson there is really, you know, that you you've got to keep. You've got to go like a barracuda in a way uh, for those quality assets. You know, do your work well, identify the, the quality assets, and in a way, don't give up. Do you like going back to assets that you've owned before and revisiting them? Is that, is that something that's a kind of a part of your process? Well, it can be. It can be. It's one part of the pipeline. The, the advantage, of course, is that you know the asset very well, sort of what's and all in a way. Uh, and you know the people very well. Uh, and in my case, I know their mothers and fathers type of thing. So having been there for some uh, period of time. Uh, the, other, the other thing, of course, is that uh, with a good uh, understanding, knowledge of the bigger companies, you know what the bigger companies, more or less, uh, how they think strategically about some of these things. So that's also a, a hunting ground for us, if you like, in terms of the bigger the bigger companies, because they only really want to manage five or six or eight or whatever it happens to be of their top ten businesses or, or the top businesses. And some of the other businesses, some of the smaller, if you like, uh, don't fit one way or another, uh, just simply don't get the attention. So that's, that's, that's a hunting ground for us to give them the attention uh, and improve volumes, improve productivity and so on if the opportunity is there. So we've got a, we would call it from our business perspective a competitive advantage if you like, but from the fact we've been doing it for a long period of time, uh, we do know many of the assets very well, we know many of the people very well, and we know many of the corporates and their their strategy very well, Patrick. 
There's certainly been some pretty incredible businesses created in Australia off the back of selling assets uh, by the majors. Uh, I don't want to mention too many by name, as, uh, as I'm sure you see some of them as competitors, but it's pretty, it's pretty incredible, particularly over the last 10 years, how many, how many great Australian listed resources companies have been born out of the, the unloved and rejected assets of, of, of the majors. Um, bit of a change of tack for you, though. Um, I want to talk about the UK and the coal assets that you have there. Uh, so there's a West Cumbria coal mine that you've been developing there for a few years. It's been mired in a little bit of controversy, which seems to me like it's maybe based around a bit of a misunderstanding of what the asset actually produces and what it's used for. Could you explain what that, what that asset actually produces and why it's different to thermal coal? Yes, yes. Okay, well, look, just, just real quick in terms of background, our, in EMR Capital, we're, we're copper, gold, base and precious metals on the, on the one side, and on the bulk commodity side, we prefer potash uh, and we prefer metallurgical coal. So we prefer uh, met coal. So uh, when we were looking for, going back a few years now, when we were looking around the world for undeveloped uh, metallurgical coal assets. There weren't a lot of them going around and, and got to have quality. If you're going to be in the bulk commodities business, Patrick, you need to have a, well, you need to have quality as a, certainly as a, a private equity group. Uh, and you also need to have an infrastructure solution. So we don't want to be building railway lines and, and ports and harbours all around the countryside anywhere. You, you would prefer all of that infrastructure uh, in position. And, and uh, one that we identified that fitted that bill was the West Cumbria uh, metallurgical coal deposit. It, it had been mined many years ago, going back 40 or 50 years, for again, for met coal, for uh, steel-making coal, uh, and, and it was right next door to infrastructure. It, it had uh, railway line, port, uh, people, you know, very supportive uh, community in that part of the world, all looking for work, uh, if you like, like... Everybody in the world, they're all looking for work one way or the other. Um, and, and so it had various certain development and so on on it already that we were very comfortable taking it over and, and getting into business there. Highly competitive, low-cost, long-life uh, project. So we're confident ab- about that. And, and Metcoal uh, is probably only 15% of the world's total coal mined and used. Most of it, of course, is thermal coal, or energy coal goes into power stations. Uh, metallurgical coal goes into uh, steel mills. That's, that's effectively its exclusive uh, use to be able to provide steel. Okay, so thermal, thermal coal, well, there are alternatives, renewables, uh, uranium, and various other things for uh, energy production. Metallurgical coal, no serious competing material at this time. So even though, uh, even though in the blast furnaces people are talking about, yes, and we'll inject some hydrogen, they're already doing some of that. Uh, yes, we'll, we will have uh, carbon capture uh, and usage, CCSU and, and so on. Yes, we'll have all of those things. Uh, yes, we need higher quality met coal. Yes, we need more scrap and that will come naturally. Uh, yes, we need higher quality iron ore and so on and so forth, but you still need a long, strong diet uh, of good quality metallurgical
metallurgical coal, and particularly if it can be closer to the steel mills uh, in, in terms of its end use, cutting down on transport costs and therefore emissions from that, that perspective. So, so that's what attracted us to that. We're still uh, long, strong believers in metallurgical coal, certainly out to uh, 2070 uh, and beyond, uh, Patrick, uh, and this particular uh, assets, still a project, not operating yet, but we're looking to get the final clearances. So, so here it is in the UK, uh, up in West Cumbria, not very far away from Glasgow, and there's been a bit of, bit of chat going on up there in Glasgow in just recent times at COP26. So, so we kept a very low profile, but, but I have to say, uh, coal, met coal came out of, uh, COP26 in a way, very, very well. People are starting to understand two or three things. First of all, that there is a difference uh, between metallurgical coal and, and thermal and, and energy coal. Uh, and secondly, that this is a transition. You know, it's not a, uh, it's not a quick fix, silver bullet magic pudding cliff that you can do it sort of overnight. This will take some time. And taking some time uh, Patrick, is not an excuse just to kick it down the road, so as to speak. Taking some time means that you've got to develop the technology, you've got to test it out, you've got to implement it, you've got to commission it and get all of those things in. And that's where uh, the work that's going on around the world is just amazing that's happening. And, and, and the future will come forward faster, for sure. You know, you saw it happen here during COVID. It, it just came at us very quickly. Uh, it happened over the last 30, 40 years in terms of longer, stronger uh, commodity demand. So, and, and now the world, and particularly China, has got such a massive industrial base and, and research and technical R&D base, if you like, that all of those technologies will be developed. We here in Australia will be playing our part. Uh, we in our business, of course, uh, as, a, as a mining group, will be playing our part in supplying those uh, metals and, and commodities uh, and so on. But Australia in particular got very serious competitive advantage in all of those things now. I mean, we don't have the industrial might of, uh, of China or, say, Europe or the United States, but we've got very serious competitive advantage in our things, the things that we do well mining, processing, uh, mining equipment, technical services, and so on and so forth. So a little bit off track there, Patrick, but, but you know, a terrific, terrific outlook. What about electric arc furnaces? They seem to be the kind of direction that the steelmaking industry wants to go in over the next few years. Mm. How would the mass take-up of, of that over blast furnaces affect the demand for coking coal? Yes, well, it, it, again, it will be a transition. I mean, as the world has developed over the past, what, 200 years or, or thereabouts, you are seeing uh, more and more electric arc furnaces uh, because, of course, the scraps are rising. But, but it takes time for that scrap to arrive. So if you go out 50 years, yes, you'll be able to see more and more uh, steel produced uh, by the EAF uh, process because there's more scrap available, uh, DRI and so on. But, but the developing economies, India, other parts of Asia and, and continued in China, you'll still have that uh, basic oxygen furnace, blast furnace uh, technology that, that needs that diet. So... Again, it is a transition. It is a is a process, not a marathon. Uh, it's a journey. It's it's gradual uh, incrementalism, but it will certainly happen. Well, the big topic I really wanted to speak to you about today is potash, which you referred to earlier. 
How do you see the supply and demand situation moving forward for potash? Do you think that the scale of that is, uh, is big enough to meet the world's demands or do we need to be developing more and more potash um, um, assets? Yes. Yes, well, uh, you, you're quite right. It's a potash, the supply-demand uh, for potash going, going forward will be, under, will be under pressure on the demand side. Uh, I mean, there is good supply of potash about or will be potential supply, put it that way. They need development, you've got to get permitted, you've got to get it. Uh, the capital cost will be higher. Operating costs are higher than, than current operations that are gradually uh, depleting. Uh, so there, there's an equation there. The market is 75 million tonnes a year, and it's growing quite uh, well, growing quite fast anyway. For us, it's a, it's a very good underlying, if you like, of our, or underlining uh, of our thematic in terms of, you know, uh, looking for potash. Well, and as you know, you know, the population is growing. Uh, people are living uh, longer. People are eating more. As I say, I'm living proof that uh, people are eating more and living longer. Um, and and they need higher protein diets and, and that sort of thing. You know, there's less arable land. So the more fertiliser will be required. Uh, and potash is a key ingredient in, in the overall fertilisers. And the, and the supply side, as I say, there's, there's a lot of it about in the world's, in the Earth's surface, uh, but it's a question of actually getting the right project. And that's where, you know, we, we like potash. We don't want to compete with the, uh, the bigger guys, the BHPs and so on. But we see selective opportunities there in that potash fertiliser space. Before we get into any more specifics, it might be good just to understand the, the two different types of potash. Could you explain the two different types, what they're called, and what kind of the key differences are between the two? Yes, yes. Okay, well, there is... Uh, the, the, the regular good ordinary brand potash is called uh, MOP, muriate of potash, and that's the 70 to 75 million tonnes uh, a year market. That, and that's, uh, that's potassium uh, chloride, KCL, and that's the most prevalent uh, and, and growing uh, quite fast. SOP, sulphate of potash, uh, is used as a smaller market, 5 to 7 uh, million tonnes per annum, growing actually faster, uh, but it's used used mainly, almost exclusively, on what they call chloride-resistant uh, type crops. Uh, so the avocados and almonds and fresh fruit and vegetables uh, and so on tend to prefer the SOP. Uh, they, don't, they don't like the chloride as much per se. So higher value crops, is that right? Yes, yes, yeah. higher value crops, uh, rather than the, the big broad acre, uh, you know, wheats and, and corns and so on. So it's the higher value uh, fresh fruit and veg and, and avocados and so on and so forth there in California and other food basins uh, of the world. And we happen to have, you know, we're in both. We have a project in MOP and we have a project in SOP. Well, let's start with talking about the MOP project, which I believe is the Highfield project. Is that right? Yes. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, there's there are several potash projects on the ASX. Um, I think there's about five or six of them, roughly. Um, what was it about that project specifically that really attracted you to it? Um, what, what stood out to you? Yes. Okay. What 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 attracted us to Highfield in Spain? Okay. So. It's, it's HFR, listed on the ASX. Uh, the project, just a single uh, project in northern Spain, uh, just outside the city of uh, uh, Pamplona, 
uh, there in Spain. What attracted us to the... Well, Spain is, is generally speaking, a, a long, strong mining uh, country, so a lot of experience in, in all of that. The availability, uh, the, the tons, the grade, the other key success factors you need, you know, what are, what are the secrets to success, if you like, or the KSFs when it comes to a particular deposit or operation, Highfield and that particular project got all of them. It's, it's got good availability. You've got lots and lots of upside there. You've really got half of what they call the Ebro, uh, subbasin or most of the subbasin there. So, Oodles and oodles of upside and very, very long life, you know. So that's what attracted us to it and not very far uh, below the surface. It was available uh, and we knew the people uh, involved. We knew the people who pegged the ground, did the work and so on and so forth. So that helped. That gave us some uh, comfort. So it's got all of those things about it. And as I was saying a bit earlier, in respect of the bulk commodities, if you're going to be in those bulk commodities, and particularly if you, you're, you know, Mighty Mouse EMR type of thing, you need the infrastructure solution. You don't, you don't want to be, um, you know, building railways and ports and so on. And, and, and this has in the middle of Europe, in the middle of Europe and in the middle of the market. So you're right next to ports, you're on the railway system, you've got uh, you've got energy, you've got power, you've got people, and you've got terrific access to all the markets. So that, that's basically what attracted us uh, to Highfield. Patrick, and we own about 30% or something like that. Cross over to the other side of the Atlantic now. Uh, there's another uh, potash project that you're involved with, uh, with Peak Minerals. Could you tell us a little bit about that one? Again, what attracted you to the project? What are some of the, the unique things that you like about it? Mm. Yes. Well, that's, uh, Patrick, that's an SOP project over there in Utah, uh, down to the south of the, uh, of, of um, Salt Lake City is the Sevier Playa. In other words, it's the Sevier Salt Lake. Uh, and that's the project, uh, will be built on that particular lake. So I've got all the environment, done all the environmental work, done all the detailed technical work and so on. And that's a project that we're in the uh, stages now of, of financing. Permitting is all done uh, and getting prepared for construction and then ultimate uh, operation. It's, it's SOP. Uh, what attracted it, uh, us to that, apart from the fact that it's in Potash and, and SOP, very mining friendly jurisdiction there uh, in Utah. Uh, you will remember actually that uh, Utah was the home to, you know, some of the very big mining companies and construction companies, actually, uh, throughout the US, and, and they branched down into South America and so on. Anyway, so good uh, mining-friendly jurisdiction there, so good, good support from the local uh, government and governors and communities and so on. Again, like communities all around the world, they're all looking to get uh, work and growth and development for themselves and their children and their grandchildren. Uh, so, so it had that about it. It's a good quality uh, material on the lake uh, and relatively straightforward. All of our test work is relatively straightforward in terms of getting the, getting the brine running and it's the brine that you then evaporate uh, in, in solar ponds on the surface uh, and then you process uh, that uh, result uh, and concentrate it and it becomes SOP. So, um, so you're not digging it out of the ground at all, then? It's not a digging process per se. It, it's more, uh, that's right, it's an evaporation uh, process from, from brines, getting the brines running, because the, uh, the sulphate of potash, the potassium sulphate, is actually contained uh, in that brine. The chlorides are gone, uh, so God has done the work for us there, 
the chlorides have gone and, and you're left with the resultant uh, SOP. So terrific project. I mean, they take time. You've got to get the evaporite uh, right. Uh, you've got to get the timing right. You've got to get the chemistry right and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it will go very well. We're very confident uh, it will go very well. Also, uh, Patrick, it's right in the middle of the market, so it, it will disappear back into the uh, across to the east, back into America, or down into uh, California uh, for the high-value fruit and veg, almonds, avocados, and so on, uh, and also down into Mexico, and we can get it down into Peru as well. There's probably not enough for all of those places uh, because we'll ultimately get to about. I think three or four hundred thousand tons per annum, or something like that. That's, that's quite a big SOP uh, operation, but 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 very competitive in terms of its uh, its cost. You, you're using the sun, using solar energy, uh, if you like, right in the middle of the market. Infrastructure already exists; don't have to build any of that uh, out, and so it will be uh, very competitive for a very long period of time. So it's it's a sort of forty to fifty year life. You've mentioned a couple of times throughout the interview the importance of getting the mining jurisdiction right. Um, I feel like this is perhaps something that's a little bit underappreciated uh, by a lot of mining investors, particularly retail investors. Yes. Um, could you talk a little bit about that specifically? You know, I don't know if you've got any examples perhaps of times when projects have fallen over because they've been in the wrong jurisdiction, but just how, just how much attention do you pay to that? Yes. Well, it, it is the first thing that you, you look at, certainly. Uh, and the jurisdictions here in Australia, for example, is mainly controlled by the states. That's the, the, the mining rules and regulations, uh, etc. Uh, and we've been doing it for a very long period of time. So, yes, we have a bit of a whinge and a grizzle and a sledge every now and again with respect to the government, the regulator. Uh, but really, they're, you know, very supportive, uh, very reliable, uh, and very mining friendly uh, in a way, and, and indeed very supportive when it comes to research and development and four, five, seven visas and various other things. You can get all you can get all of those things. You've got to fight hard for them from time to time, but you can pretty well get uh, all of those things. Okay, now you contrast that with a uh, with some of the Asian uh, countries that just have never had that mining development before. Uh, then, then you're sort of starting afresh in a way, uh, and therefore you have to work with the jurisdictions, work with the national government, work with the provincial government, and particularly work with the communities in terms of getting an understanding uh, of what it is you're about to do. I mean, it's one thing to go in and uh, get all the exploration work done and so on. You do it from afar, then you do it near. Uh, you make your discovery, uh, and you've got to be confident that you're going to be able to develop and be there for the long term. So, clearly, it's not just the national government and the rules and regulations and the mining permit. It's not just the provincial government. You really have to do your work so well, ultimately, on the ground with the local people, because they are ultimately your social licence because it's their valley and that you've invaded, if you like. Uh, so you have to win their trust, their confidence, their support, their cooperation. And so we spend a lot of time at that. So you have to be confident that going into a new uh, jurisdiction, not only at the, at the national, federal, provincial level, but particularly at the local level, that you are going to be able uh, to do your work and, and build their trust uh, and cooperation. 
that's the single most important thing about going to these places, right? And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're in the middle of the Pilbara or the red dust of, of Mount Isa or the rainforests of North Sumatra or the Atacama Desert. You know, you really must have that. That's so important for your, you know, long-term uh, sustainable business. So we take that very, very seriously. It's one thing to do the, uh, you know, the, the drill work and the resource work and the engineering and the construction and so on. We can do that in our sleep. But it's so important to get that social work done uh, on the ground, Patrick. Well, uh, before we move into my favourite questions, uh, I want to put you on the spot about uh, about probably what I think is the biggest question for for any you know mining investor to to consider. Looking out over the next five to ten years, so you know long term but not ultra long term, taking all things into account, supply, demand, etc. What's the commodity that really stands out to you as uh, you, that you think is going to have the best performance over that period? Yes. Out over that period of time, five to ten years and perhaps longer, longer term, copper will go very well uh, uh, because it's used in everything. You know, every electrical uh, application, every growth, it's a producer good, it's a consumer good, it's an investment good, it's an infrastructure good. It's in everything. Um, and now, of course, with the whole uh, energy transition dynamic and complex going on, choosing all of those things, doesn't matter if it's renewables or electric vehicles or however it's done, you need Dr. Copper in there. So it's got another growth uh, spurt. So, so Copper's one of our favourites for sure. But Patrick, also all of the other uh, battery metals complex, you know, they are competing with each other. They're they're jostling for position there, uh, but they will all be used one way or the other. That's lithium, uh, cobalt, nickel. Nickel's just got a, another spurt on type of thing. So that's that's the complex that we like, and 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 fortunately, we're actually very familiar with that complex uh, as well. So that's. That helps. I mean, the steel industry will continue to go very, very well uh, indeed, for sure, uh, as will all other things that are actually going on out, out there. But we particularly like where you've seen uh, copper, which has got a very strong growth profile anyway, sort of noblest and most versatile of all metals and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's now got that extra, the booster. It's had its third booster, if you like. Well, that's actually it for the main part of the interview, but I have three favourite questions which I always like to ask every one of my guests. So if you're happy to stick around for another 10 minutes or so, we'll jump into those now. No worries. Can do, Patrick. Excellent. First of all, could you tell me about a book that's been particularly influential on you as an investor? What were some of the interesting lessons that you took from it? Yes. Well, look, uh, very good question. And, um, and books and, and most people uh, these days read a lot of books. They've got a lot of information. We've got so much information coming at us so all of the time. So we're, we're always reading, I suppose, in a way. One of the things that uh, particularly after I left the uh, Rio Tinto organisation, the mothership, uh, you know, going from the big end of town to the smaller end of town, a lot of things are done for you in in the mothership type of thing, but in the smaller uh, outfit, you are literally on your own, got to do it all yourself, uh, and particularly looking to grow the business. And I mentioned a bit earlier that we're looking to grow our business in uh, in Asia and copper and gold and so on and so forth. And and so, what are the key success factors in in growing that business in the in the opportunities there? Well, you need very good people, uh, of course, uh, and of course, you need the people with the skills, the hardware. Uh, and you need people with the motivation. You, ne- you need the commitment 
You know, that's the software uh, side of it. So how do you build the... It's one thing to go to, uh, to go to school and go to university and go to tech and so on and so forth, and you can build up that skill set. Uh, but how do you build up that uh, commitment? So as a, as a leader, I suppose, put in, the, put in the spot of looking to build the team over a period of time and, and build culture, uh, how do you do that? You know, what are the key success factors? What are the buttons? Well, what, what must you do uh, to, you know, help, guide, coach, lead uh, people through that whole process, whether it's the people who directly report to you, uh, whether it's other other stakeholders, other other folks, you know, in and around the companies and so on. And one of the, the multiple books, so I did actually a lot of reading about all of that. How do, how do you build that, you know, uh, looking at going from good to great and search of excellence, all of those sort of books are just a few of them. Now there's a, a plethora of them in terms of um, uh, advice that you can get. But one of the one of the fellows is a, is a man called Stephen Covey, uh, who wrote the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, and then he wrote the Eighth Habit. Uh, and he did, did a lot of lecture tours. Almost evangelical, actually, was uh, Covey. Uh, but he was he was very very important because he made it very simple, very clear. Here are the, the these people have done a, an amazing job, and these are the key success factors. These are the seven habits. These are the things that they do. Doesn't mean that if you do them, they're going to work for you, or it doesn't mean if you do them, you'll do them as well as other people have. But there's a very very uh, you know clear theme in there, and so. So we used uh, we used those in the company and so on. So we build up the uh, we built up the trust, we build up the confidence, we built up the culture uh, that went you know, equipped the tools that we had in terms of the technical capability uh, to do our work well. Well, as always, if you're looking for that book, I will put a link in the description to the podcast. So if you're on YouTube, just have a look at the description there. Uh, if you're on Livewire, there'll also be a link in the wire to this podcast. Next question for you. Uh, tell us about your biggest loss or gain. And again, what were the lessons that you took away from the experience? Yes, yes. Well, look, I think we're always learning from uh, more from our losses than our gains. I always think so. <laughs> And uh, and uh, I've had a few of them. I've got a room full of them. I've got a, got a whole library full of uh, mistakes and losses and so on, Patrick. So singling one out's a bit hard. But but one of the uh, one of the very serious uh, lessons that I've learned, and, and not just in Rio Tinto, so in other, in all manner of uh, the you know my career, if you can call it that, uh, from the from the big end of town to growing the mighty ox. Uh, and then in EMR Capital, more as a uh, as a, a private equity uh, investor, most key, absolutely fundamental. I mean, there's an, a number of most important things, but absolutely fundamental. You must do your due diligence well. You must do your work well. If you're looking at something, at the moment we're looking at multiple assets so all around the world for acquisition, for improvement, uh, and so on. So you must do your work well as an individual and you must lead the work that, that's happening, but you must make sure uh, that the boys and girls actually on the ground are doing their work very well as well. So you must, you must have the best. You must have the best people, particularly when you're getting into something, when you're building something, because whatever it is that you build is going to last forever you know so so you must make sure that you do your work well uh, there so your your due diligence uh, and the work that you do at that uh, area must be superb and and in fact it's not just me banging on about all of that and people like Stephen Covey and so on and so forth but you'll see a lot of the uh, 
lot of the, the leaders are very fussy, very fussy when it comes to uh, people. And that's, that's one of the secrets to success. You've got to be fussy. Don't be slow. Uh, but, you know, you've got to be fussy about those things, Patrick. Now, I've got one more question, but before I ask it, ask it, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting that anybody goes out there, puts all of their money in a single stock and forgets about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and hopefully a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if the markets were going to close for the next five years starting from tomorrow and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? Well... I've been talking about uh, copper, I've been talking about experience and, and so on and so forth. And, and of course, we recently successfully floated in Australia in July this year on, on the ASX 29 metals. And it's a copper uh, base metals uh, company. It, it has uh, also has cobalt. Uh, and Patrick, it's got all of the uh, ingredients. In, in other words, it's got good strong demand profile for those metals, uh, challenges to supply, and the people that uh, have populated both the board and the senior management team there are people that we have known, worked with and very comfortable with uh, before, you know. So, so that, that gives us the confidence uh, that 29M uh, is going to do very, very well. And, and, of course, I happen to be the chairman, so a little bit on the, uh, uh, that side there, if you, if you like, uh, but we're very confident it will go very well in this market. That's all right. We don't have any rules against talking your own book here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, Owen, thanks so much for chatting to us today. It's been wonderful get, to get your insights and thanks for being part of this special video podcast. Lovely. Thank you, Patrick. And, and thank you for the opportunity to have a bit of a go on Livewire. Well done. Well, that's the end of the show. If you made it this far, I hope that means you enjoyed it. So please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you're a Livewire reader, give this wire a like. Thanks for tuning in.